is risen. That's right. We made to do that one more time. Some of us are out of practice. He is risen. Oh, praise the Lord. Yes, he is. I wanted to say happy Easter. Thank you so much for joining us. I um, just want to echo the welcome that uh, Brother Pat gave. We're so glad that you're here to worship with us. It's a joy to see all of you. Um, and thank you so much, especially. I want to just say uh, good morning to all of you who are in our overflow. Um, we are so grateful for uh, this beautiful property that God has given us. Um, and in his kindness, uh, we are outgrowing it. And so thank you for uh, your patience and uh, being here and uh, for joining us. And so glad. I hope that uh, you'll stick around. Don't rush out too quick. I'd love to run over and say good morning to you um, after our time together closes. Um, I do see just a couple of seats here. I know they're on the front row, and that makes people very nervous. Um, But if anybody needs a seat, uh, you're welcome to come forward, and I won't call you out. Um, We're so glad you're here. One of my favorite stories is um, from C.S. Lewis, and uh, we are so often familiar with it. It's uh, um, sometimes viewed as a children's book, um, but it's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in that story, the character Lucy um, meets Aslan, and Aslan is uh, the great lion, but is also a figure, a type, points to Christ himself. And when she sees Aslan in this story, Lucy gazes up and says, she gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. He says back, that is because you're a little older, little one. No, because you are, she says. I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And I love this picture of what it means to grow in Christ, to be maturing in our faith. As we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done, he grows bigger in our hearts and in our minds, deeply within our souls. And today, as we celebrate the death of death, the Jesus who died to atone for sin, did not stay in the grave, but proved the power of his love for us as he walked out of the grave. My prayer and my hope for every single one of us, no matter where you are seated or listening from, is that Jesus would grow bigger in our hearts and in our souls. As one of my good friends often prays before he ever preaches, let Jesus be big today. That is my prayer for us. We are going to begin a new teaching series in the book of Hebrews today. So if you want to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to start there and then flip back to what Mason read for us in John chapter 11. But if you're a guest with us, just know that it's our practice to sort of work our way through books of the Bible. And so we just finished the book of Joshua. We're launching into Hebrews. And so what better day, Easter Sunday, to start a new series And for us all to to just rejoice in the fact that we can jump in together. Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to work our way through that over the next couple of months. But the reason that we have this book in our Bibles, and that's a great question to ask. Why does God give us these words to us? What is the purpose that he has for us in them? Well, one of the things that God intends to do and does through the book of Hebrews is he enlarges Christ. We see the bigness of Christ in it. Our understanding of all that he came to do is more fully understood when we study this book. 
And the author of the book of Hebrews begins in the way that he accomplishes that, where he starts, is by describing how powerful, how great, how glorious Jesus is. A little bit of background on this book. It's written to what we believe to a group of Jewish Christians. These people had believed in Jesus, but they had never seen him. Unlike the apostles, they had not seen Jesus personally. And so this, they are walking in their faith very much like we are. They are believing by faith in what Jesus has done. Because they were Jewish, they knew all of the Old Testament prophecies. They understood the stories of Jesus, and they believed them, and they had followed them. They could tell you the answers. As the book of Joshua that we just studied, they would be able to tell you and sort of recount for you all that God did for their um, grandfathers and grandmothers and greats and greats and greats. But it's also true that this small group of Christians finds themselves being persecuted. It's believed that more than likely there's a great possibility that this book was written to a small sect of Jewish Christians who are living in Rome and in some ways having to live in hiding because of the oppression of Rome. It's not for, not for sure of that, but because of the persecution and all the trials that they're facing in their life, they're slipping back in a little bit into Judaism. And so the author writes this letter to these people, this little house church in Rome, to help them once again recapture and grasp in their minds how big Jesus is. And so he begins with the bigness and the glory of Christ. And on Easter Sunday, we remember and we look and we see and we celebrate the glory and the bigness of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author of Hebrews, as he expounds upon the bigness of Christ, he makes these seven statements about who he is. The first is, he says that we, spoke, we used to hear from God, again, these are Jewish Christians, we used to hear from them, from God, through the prophets. Much of our Old Testament is written by prophets who were speaking on behalf of God and explaining to God's people or calling God's people to live according to his word. And so God spoke. And one of the first things that we understand from that is that God has revealed himself to us. Some of us, I expect there might be someone here in this room who is unsure if you know God. And you may be even taking that to a step further. You may be so unsure that you can know God. Is it possible for us as created people, created human beings, to, to know and understand God? And we can because God has revealed himself to us. We began our Easter morning down in our amphitheater looking over God's beautiful creation, the vines. And in Romans, God, the author of Romans tells us that the creation testifies to who God is, to his power, to his greatness, to his magnificence. But we also don't just have creation. Here it says God has spoken through the prophets of old, and now where the prophets let off, Jesus picks up the ball. He speaks to us now. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies. Everything that we read in our Old Testament points to Jesus, and our New Testament is a continuation of what God began in the story of redemption of his people. What this also tells us is that if you're trying to understand God outside of his son, then we're on a futile journey. How many of us, it's our story, perhaps from our past, maybe some of you even now, looking to try and understand God, trying to find your place in the world, trying to understand what all of this life means. Those are great questions, and you're in the perfect place, and I'm so glad that you would trust us enough to come and consider Jesus. But here is the answer. You will not understand your life or anything else in this life outside of understanding it through the lens of Jesus Christ. He has spoken to us through his son, if we want to know God, if we want to understand what God is doing in the world, if we want to understand anything in this life, it is through the understanding of Jesus that we gain a knowledge of this life. He is, he continues, he says that he is the heir of all things. In these last days, verse 2, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. This tells us that Jesus owns everything. Sometimes you've heard stories of people who have great inheritances. They're coming for them. And so because of the great inheritance that is coming, they live lives somewhat frivolously. They can do whatever they want because they know they've got an inheritance coming. Well, Jesus owns everything. He is the heir of all things. There is nothing in the cosmos that Jesus does not say, it's mine. I own it. I am superior to it all. John 1, and excuse me, at the end of this chapter in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 1, it says that sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God speaking about the Son saying he owns it all. Even his enemies will be a footstool for him. Everything is his. Through whom, this is continuing in verse 2, through whom also He created the world. Everything that we see, that beautiful creation that we drove up into, that we look upon outside, was created through Christ. John 1 and Colossians 1 speak to this idea. When we read Genesis, we see it says that God created, and what he's saying there is that he created that through the power of Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, everything that we see, everything that exists in this world was created for him and by him. For him and by him. He continues, he, in verse 3, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Once again, do you want to know God? Do you want to see God? Do you want to try and understand God as much as we have the ability to understand our creator? We look to Jesus. One way to translate that text is to say, he is the outshining the overflow of all that God is, we see through Christ. Another way that this word is used 
the original language, we can see that he is, in some senses, he is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. And so again, if we want to see him and we want to know him and we want to understand God, we do all of that through Jesus. Jesus is the one who teaches us and speaks to us about God. He is the one who owns everything. He is the one who created everything. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And everything that exists in the universe is upheld by his power. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This last week we have been acknowledging Jesus' power over creation and his power over the universe as our team has been praying fervently that the rain would hold off. We prayed against the rain all week because we had a great Easter egg hunt that we put on for our community. Who was at the Easter egg hunt yesterday? All right, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And so we've been praying that there would not be rain and we said, Jesus, it would not be in your nature to rain out this thing that you have called us to do. And so uphold the clouds. And we prayed that again this morning saying, Lord, either let it pour all day Saturday and be done or just hold it off and let us get to lunch and then you can rain on us. We've been praying because we acknowledge and we know that Jesus is the one who upholds everything. As I often say in our church, if you're a guest with us, you'll probably hear this quote continue for years to come. But I love it. There is not one molecule in the universe that is out of place. Because Jesus has them exactly where he intends them to be. Jesus put the sun in the sky. He held off the rain. He put us here. He gave you life. Everything is in, in control of his hand. You, your life, is in the palm of this Jesus' hand. This great Jesus, this big Jesus, the glory of the radiance of God, the wisdom of God, the holiness of God, all of it is in Jesus' hands. And in that bigness, now he says, look at what he does. Look at what he has done as an overflow of his love and his power. It says, after making purification for sins. Jesus, in all of that bigness, in all of that power, and in all of his humility, chose to lay down his life for you and for me. And he did that to make purification for sin because our God is a holy and just God and the sins of the world, as we talked about on Good Friday, had to be atoned for. There had to be a, a punishment for that. There had to be a payment for those sins. And Jesus, rather than making us go to our death, has said, I will make purification for sins. And the, the hearers of this, these Jewish Christians, they would understand this very clearly because they had grown up under the ceremonial law and understood the ceremonial law that said the priests have to continually go into the meeting place of God and they have to make a sacrifice to atone for our sins. But these priests would do this over and over and over again. Every year they would have to make atonement for sin. The people would sin, there would be problems in the, in, 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 amongst the people and the priest would go in and make an atonement. They would make a sacrifice to pay for the sins of the people. But Jesus, it says, he made purification for sin and here is one of the most powerful verses in all of our Bible. And after making purifications for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down, friends. No longer do the priests have to go in and make continual sacrifices to atone for sins because what this book tells us is that what Jesus did on that first Good Friday when he went to the cross, it was enough. It, was, it satisfied God. It satisfied the demands of sin. And so all of our sins have been paid for. Your sins have been paid for. Stop persecuting yourself. Stop trying to make atonement for sins for yourself. Stop trying to be good enough to make things measure up to do this on your own. Everything was paid for when Jesus says it is finished. And we know that is true because God the Father said, come sit at my right hand and wait until I make your enemies your footstool, your final enemy your footstool. The author of Hebrews is telling us through this text just how big Jesus is, and we see the bigness of his love for us. Now, with that bigness in mind and that power of Jesus in mind, I want us to go back to John chapter 11 in this story of Lazarus. In this story, we see the power and the depth of Christ's love for us on full display. We see a love that drove him to the cross. Why did Jesus, why would he go to the cross? It's because of his love for you. And as you heard Mason read for us, we heard the story of Lazarus' death. But I want to pick up in verse 28 where he left off after this conversation with Mary, asking Mary, do you believe that your brother will live? And she was not quite sure. She sort of missed exactly what Jesus was doing here. But in verse 28, we hear a little bit of what Jesus is dealing with in his heart. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, and so Lazarus is sitting in a village, or he's dead in the village. Martha and Mary are there. Jesus is sort of outside the city, and so they go and meet him outside the city. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her. And so the whole throng of these people go and follow Mary out to meet Jesus, supposing they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. And greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he open the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. So Jesus, after delaying coming to meet with Lazarus and delaying coming to heal him, now finds himself deeply moved and grieved over the situations that his friends have. And this is a very strange thing. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but we see this very strange thing that Jesus does. It says, Jesus wept. Now, I know some of you grew up in church and you'd love that verse 
because you got to tell mom I memorized some scripture. <laughs> but there's something confounding about that. Jesus wept. Think about that for a moment. Why would Jesus weep? The story told us that, again, in the beginning, he wasn't in a big hurry. If we go back, he tells to the disciples in verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So it's Mary's brother Lazarus. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love, this tells us how much Jesus loves Lazarus, is ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, or, but when Jesus heard it, it says, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God might be glorified through it. Jesus wasn't in some big hurry to make his way to Lazarus. He understood what was happening, and he said there that this isn't something that leads to death. Jesus isn't a very good doctor, it seems, because Lazarus did die, right? Why would Jesus weep? This is kind of like my wife crying over running late after we've gone into Target. She knows what happens when she goes into Target. We're going to be late if she goes to Target before. So why would Jesus weep? He knew what was happening. He knew what he was doing. And he intentionally, it seems, delayed his going to Lazarus. And yet here he finds himself weeping and deeply moved. He could have come sooner and Jesus would be alive. On top of that, not only could he have come sooner, he knows exactly what he's going to do, and he knows the power that he has to do what he's going to do. He understands that he's going to raise Lazarus from the death, dead. He also understands that he has the power to do that. That's why he could say to the disciples, it's for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified through it. So why would Jesus weep in this moment? It teaches us three things. One, it demonstrates the humanity of our Savior. He is God, but he is the God-man, fully human, with all of the emotions that you and I have. This is why the author of Hebrews would say later in chapter 4 that we have a high priest who is familiar with our sufferings. This isn't, we don't worship a God who is distant from us, friends. We don't worship a God, yes, he is completely other than us, but through Christ he has made himself known to us and he is familiar with us. The grief, the suffering, the tears you cry, Jesus has cried himself. He is understanding of that. He empathizes with that. He doesn't condemn you in that weakness. He says, I am with you, brother, sister, friend, loved one. I grieve too. We have a high priest that we can run to who is familiar have you ever run to a friend that you knew didn't really understand what you were going through? And they tried to be empathetic, but it just didn't really hit right? That's not Jesus. Jesus is the friend that we run to who empathizes and understands fully our suffering. Second, it demonstrates the depth of his love for us. He is moved by the grief of his friends because he loves them. He is just as grieved for the trials and the sufferings that you're walking through in this moment as he was for the friends that he walked with on this earth all those years ago. That thing that you're dealing with, that weight that you're struggling with, whatever it might be, Jesus loves you and he is grieved by it and it bothers him. And that's why, again, in Hebrews chapter 7, it says that when we can't even pray because we are so grieved and so hurt and so fragile that we have Again, a priest 
who intercedes for us. When you don't have words, when you can't even mutter because of the anguish that you're dealing with, you have Jesus sitting now at the right hand of the Father who is interceding for you because he loves you. It demonstrates how great his love for us. Finally, it demonstrates just how much Jesus hated death. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tombs, and it uses these words, he was deeply moved. There really isn't a good English translation of those words. But I want you to take every emotion of anger, frustration, sadness, heartbreak, everything that you can muster up, and I want you to put that into a ball, and I want you to put it as tightly and as deeply in your soul, and whatever comes out, that is what happened to Jesus in that moment when he sees his friends grieving at the death of their brother and their loved one, when he sees his good friend, Lazarus, dealing with death and frustrated by it, he is deeply moved. He is in anguish in his soul, so much so that tears flow out of his eyes. And what happens is he says in his soul, I hate death. I hate it. In verse 33, it says he's deeply moved by the grief of his friends. When he comes to the tomb in verse 38, he's deeply moved again. And Jesus weeps because of his hatred of death. And he hated what sin had done to his creation. He hated the condition that sin and death were ruling over this world. And so Jesus decided, not then, but he did, he decided this before he ever came, but he demonstrates what he had decided, that he was going to end death's rule. He was going to put an end to it. Jesus wept because he hated death and he had seen what it was doing to his creation. Have you ever been working on an amazing sermon and then your computer crashes and in your mind... It was going to go down in the annals of Spurgeon and Edwards and all the great preachers of old. And then you don't have it anymore. It's happened before. <laughs> Jesus hated what sin and death were doing to his great creation. That he was upholding by the power of his hand. And so he goes to Lazarus' tomb and he raises him from the dead. It says in verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, perhaps a loud voice that would not be heard again until he said, it is finished. He says, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands bound, his feet with linen strips, his face wrapped with cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus conquered death in that moment. And then, having conquered death for Lazarus, he went to the cross 
to atone for the sins of the world. And on that first Easter Sunday morning, he walked out of the grave saying, death no longer has any hold on my creation. The anguish that he felt that says, Lazarus, come out. I'm going to a cross. I'm going to lay down my life for these people and no more will death rule over them. They are mine. His enemy is his footstool. You are his, and he loves you enough that he said, you will not suffer under death any longer. Death no longer speaks over his creation. That is what Jesus did when he walked out of the grave. And the only question that we have left is to ask, do we believe? Do you know he loves you that much and the power that he has, that that Jesus that is spoken about in Hebrews who upholds everything, he says death no longer has a hold on your life. Would you believe it? Because if you would, Jesus' promise to you is, though you may die, yet shall you live forever and ever. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? If you believe it, you're going to have trouble in this life. I regret to tell you. You're going to suffer just as Jesus did. Your body will fail. But because of that first Easter, you shall not die. Because Jesus was raised to life, you and I can have everlasting life. Would you believe that today? If you don't know Jesus, if you came in here unsure, would you believe this Jesus' words to you? Trust his words to you and step into his kingdom. And for those of us who have believed, may we start living in such a way that we realize that we will never die eternity is not something friends that we're waiting on we don't say okay now i now i'm dead so now i can be with jesus and everything's going to be great jesus says that i came that you might have life and have it in abundance and we've been raised to life that's what we talk about at baptism buried with christ in baptism into his death raised in his life in the victory of his life and so Don't wait to live for eternity. Your eternity is now. And you will never die. This body, they may kill. God's truth abideth still. One word will falter. He will put all enemies underneath his feet. And so let us live with that. Let us be an Easter people, a resurrection people. Let us live believing that we shall not die. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning. We praise your great and mighty name because you have done a great and mighty thing. You, who are the radiance of the glory of God, came and laid down your life to atone for my sins and for the sins of the world so that we might be welcomed into eternal life. And when you walked out of that grave, you said, death no longer has hold on my people. Thank you, Jesus, that you put death to death. Thank you that it has no sentence over us. Help us all to believe that, Lord, and help us to live as your people.
as resurrection people all the days of our lives. We pray these things in the great and mighty name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.